What happens when you put two experts behind mics to match wits on the current state of financial services, the economy, investments, and more? From the American College of Financial Services, this is Wealth Managed. Welcome to Wealth Managed. I'm Michael Finca. I'm a professor of wealth management at the American College. And I'm David Blanchett, uh, head of retirement research at PGM, which is the investment management group of Prudential. David, everybody's freaking out right now about inflation. I don't know if you've heard anything about inflation. I mean, you know, around the dinner table conversation, cranky grandparents talking about inflation. But let's talk about, first of all, some unique aspects of this period of inflation. And let's, as preface, let's also mention that a lot of people have been wondering why we haven't been having inflation that's been very high for a long time. There was for a while this idea that, you know, maybe the federal government could spend as much money as it wanted and that interest rates could be as low as they needed to be. And we would never see inflation again because something had changed. Well, now what we're seeing is that inflation is actually going up. It's real again. A lot of people have forgotten that it existed, that it wasn't really a risk anymore. I think he, even when we did some simulations, we just assumed that inflation was 2% in the future and we would we wouldn't assume variable inflation. A lot of people, I think, got caught up in this idea that inflation just wasn't a risk anymore, but it is. And it's not entirely surprising that inflation is rising. And it is a bit unusual the way inflation is rising these days, because it's really not the same for every category of expenditure. We're not going to start talking about MMT, are we? I just want to take it. Um, so yeah, I think that I think that we're seeing something that's not all that surprising. You know, if you look at the, the changes, as you note, in certain expenditure groups, it, it varies widely. But I mean, heck, I mean, I see it. I, I see it when I fill my car up with gas. I see it at the grocery store when I'm shopping for food for my family. So it's very real. I think the question is, is, is how long it persists for, but then also like how it's affecting each and every individual, right? I think that that there's lots of things that we see have gone up significantly. Other things haven't increased by as much. And so I think that inflation is going to be a very kind of personal number for each person based upon their kind of unique expenditure basket. And I think this bout of inflation, it's pretty regressive in a lot of ways. It has affected workers, commuters, a lot more than you and I are both remote workers. We fly, but our employers pay for our flights in some cases. For the average worker, they have seen the price of their cars go up, they've seen the price of fuel go up, the price of rent has gone up, housing has gone up. That hurts a lot. And that means it's a particularly difficult and regressive form of inflation. I think that's why a lot of people are responding emotionally to the price increases. Let's go through some of those categories. You know, where have we seen the biggest increases in inflation and where has it been more modest? Yeah, so looking at, at some data from the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS, you know, you see that, you know, the year over year inflation for motor fuel was 70.1%, right? You've got used cars and trucks up 35%. You've got airline fares up 20%, but you've got only some things up, you know, like less than two or 3%, like medical care expenses, transportation services. And so I think to your point, this is a really regressive form of inflation and that it's disproportionately affecting certain pockets of the population. But at the same time, I think it, it also kind of calls into question, well, you know, how do you define inflation for different cohorts? And we've talked about this before, but, you know, there's, there's broad metrics of inflation, like the CPIU, which kind of is what everyone uses, but, but there's also the CPIW, the CPIE. And so, for example, elderly Americans likely haven't experienced the same rate of inflation 
than the average American has just based upon their unique consumption basket. That's right. I think healthcare, pharmaceuticals really has been flat during this period of inflation. That represents a relatively large spending category, especially for older consumers. So it may just be more of an emotional response. We go, you know, we pass a gas station and it says four bucks a gallon and it was just two bucks or a buck fifty not that long ago. We have a visceral response. But in terms of the actual budget share, for a lot of retirees, especially, it hasn't been as onerous as it has been for a lot of younger workers. Now, let's talk about interest rates here for a moment, too, because obviously the Fed is going to now consider start increasing rates. There's a lot of debate about how much they're going to be increasing rates in the future. Do you think that's going to happen? And how much flexibility does the federal government really have to increase interest rates when we have increased debt so much in the United States over the last decade? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I would say I've been very surprised at the jump in interest rates over the last month or two. I'm a little bit less surprised by inflation. But, you know, if you would have told me that you'd have a 10 year approaching 3%, even a month ago, I would have said that that's that's absolutely nuts. That's not going to happen. So I think there is this question of of where things will go. But to be honest, I mean, if, if, if inflation doesn't calm itself down, I, c- I could see rates going even higher. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an economist, but inflation is really intense right now. And I think that's obviously one way to, to calm things down. What do you think? I think that if you look at how much the government debt represents of the overall public budget right now, which is close to 10%, and you look at how much higher it would be if interest rates did continue to go up in the future, you start seeing how little flexibility the federal government actually has. They could either continue to borrow a lot more to then fund this increase in interest on the debt, which would then create like a debt spiral. We would have more debt and more interest. So the government doesn't have a whole lot of flexibility. And that's been one of the dangers, the hidden dangers of increasing the debt over the last decade, and especially during a period of expansion like we've seen over the last decade, that there are a lot of people who had been saying for a long time that this is irresponsible policy because it doesn't give us that flexibility. If we do have an inflationary period like we do now or a pandemic where we need to borrow a lot of money to be able to maintain the economy, which we did, which was successful in the United States. States, but it's left us with a legacy. And the legacy is a lot of federal debt, which gives us less room to maneuver in terms of raising interest rates. And and you can even imagine a scenario where we do try to raise interest rates that crowds out federal spending, federal spending drops that has a, that, that creates a certain recessionary impetus to the economy that the government's not spending as much. We're not borrowing as much to increase consumer spending. And we end up in a situation of stagflation. So what is stagflation? Yeah, so stagflation, you've got effectively um, interest rates going up and you've got wages going down. So you've got a a bad economic environment for for households that isn't going to be good for the economy. So if I'm paying more in prices for consumer goods, my income is not going up at the same time, then it just reduces my standard of living. So that's the worst of all worlds. And I think there's a pretty high likelihood. We experienced a couple of periods of stagflation back in the late 70s, early 80s. I think that's a reasonable expectation of what's going to be happening in the future. 
And I, I think we need to be accustomed to the idea that, that probably those standards of living are not going to rise in the future. And there are people, again, who are more vulnerable. I would say that asset owners are a little bit less vulnerable because they have the ability to invest in assets at a higher interest rate that can perhaps counteract the impact of inflation. But for those who don't have assets, financial assets, they're stuck because their wages are relatively stagnant, prices are going up, their standard of living is going down. Now, in terms of investing, what is, there, there's a lot of conventional wisdom about how to invest in an inflationary environment. What is that conventional wisdom? And what is your feeling about the right way to invest right now if we think, if we're convinced that inflation is going to go up? Well, I mean, there's ways like you can get like an explicit hedge against inflation, right? You can buy, you can buy tips or you can buy I bonds. You can get, you know, more of an implicit hedge via real assets or equities. But I, I do think that, you know, especially for retirees who are worried about inflation, now now is the time to actively ask this question. You know, how is my portfolio positioned if we have inflation that continues to be an issue for the foreseeable future? And we can look at history and see some evidence that there are some categories that do not perform well in a period where the Fed is increasing interest rates. So traditionally, consumer durables do not perform well during a period where interest rates are rising because consumers have less money to borrow to buy things like cars. That'll be interesting to see what happens to the automotive market, I think, in the next couple of years. But there are other kinds of companies that tend to do better during inflationary periods. Consumer staples, they have more power to raise prices. Anything that's related to commodities production usually tends to do well during an inflationary period. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Give your clients the retirement security they need with our Retirement Income Certified Professional designation. Visit theamericancollege.edu slash RICP to learn more. The American College of Financial Services is dedicated to providing applied financial knowledge and education, promoting lifelong learning and advocating for ethical standards for the benefit of society. I'm George Nichols III, President and CEO, and I encourage you to listen and subscribe to this and other college podcasts as we continue to expand our horizons in this digital landscape. Remember, no matter what, we are always stronger together. Visit theamericancollege.edu to learn how you can be part of the change we're building. Welcome back. Let's continue where we left off. Let's talk about stocks in general, because there is a lot of argument about whether stocks are truly an inflation hedge. What's your feeling? I mean, they kind of are, right? I think that you're, you're kind of, you're, that's what you're insinuating by your question. I mean, historically, stocks have done relatively well. They've outpaced inflation, but they haven't necessarily been uh, you know, uh, highly correlated to inflation, I think. And I think that to your point earlier, it's, it's, it's the things that are, are more kind of inelastic in nature in terms of what people consume that tend to do well when inflation's higher. I mean, you know, you, you, ha you have to buy food. So if, if we see high inflation, you, you're going to have higher food prices, right? But to your point, like durables in the past, so cars haven't necessarily done well when inflation has been high. Well, we're at a really interesting point now with, with automobiles. There's this kind of lack of supply. So even if there's inflation, I think you could see certain categories that you still see inflation in categories you haven't before, just given the nature of our economy and where things have been the last year or two. And, and let's also talk about this idea of correlation versus outperformance. So stocks have historically in the United States performed really, pretty well, especially over longer holding periods. Yep. They have received a high equity risk premium. And I think a lot of people 
a misinterpret one for the other. Because stocks in the United States have gotten that equity risk premium, they've been able to keep up with inflation over time. But again, that equity risk premium is not guaranteed. The only true hedges are those that are not positively correlated or, or who, who tend to do better in period where inflation goes up, there doesn't seem to be a really strong correlation between inflation and equities in general. So it's not really a hedge. Right. The only thing you're getting is the equity risk premium as a way of protecting yourself against a loss in purchasing power. But if stocks don't consistently provide that equity risk premium, then it's a pretty lousy hedge. And especially if you're invested in certain types of stocks like growth stocks, which may perform poorly during an inflationary period, value stocks might do better. It's probably worth paying a little bit of attention to how well securities, different types of investments have performed historically, and not, not necessarily get too caught up in this idea that the equity risk premium can reliably outperform inflation. So David, I have to ask you, what are you doing with your own investments in this forthcoming period? Are you, are you doing anything differently? I'm doing absolutely nothing. I am a long-term investor. And so like, what's important, at least for me with inflation, is I have a, a very, very good inflation hedge in my human capital. Individuals who are younger, who are working over time, you know, if there's inflation, wages tend to rise, right? I don't have to access my savings for any reason. And therefore, you know, I'm more of a long-term focused investor where if there is inflation, I would be less affected. I, again, I think that those that are, could be materially affected are those who, who are having to utilize savings, depleting savings like retirees to fund retirement. How about you, Michael? You know, I, I, I agree. That's a great point about human capital, that for both of us, our human capital still represents a really large share of our overall asset allocation. If we're going to get a little tricky with other aspects of our investment, it's not really going to make that much of a difference. Like I got my, my tax refund this year in an I bond. And I mean, if you really think about it, even if it gets 7% this year, that's 350 bucks. That doesn't represent enough of my portfolio to even be anything worth thinking about. So um, I, I think when it comes right down to it, you can get fancy, but, you know, and fancy may work like, you know, shifting from more of a growth strategy to more of a value strategy that may make a certain amount of sense, but you can get a little bit too fancy when it comes to inflation protection and keep your eye off the, the ball in terms of the long-term success of an investment portfolio. So you can do things to show your client that you're aware of the risk of inflation while at the same time, not making massive changes in your portfolio that are going to end up having negative long-term consequences. This is Chris, one of the producers of the podcast. You folks tend to be real fans, I believe, of annuities. And let's say I am 72 years old. I spent my $800,000 and bought an annuity. I have my social security. And then I have a 7% a year uh, inflation rate. Am I a host because I'm fixed? Or have I bought products that go up within with go up with inflation. I know social security does, but do annuities do too? So there are not any annuities today that have an explicit benefit increase when it comes to lifetime guaranteed income that is attached to inflation. So the answer is kind of, now you can buy investments or annuities, excuse me, that do have the potential for increases in income based upon the performance of different underlying investments that could be tied to equities or other real type assets. So I think that that is a current weakness of the product landscape and that you cannot buy 
private annuities that provide that explicit guarantee where if inflation goes up, my income goes up by the same amount. Yeah, I think, Chris, you also have to think in your retirement budget, what expenses don't change with inflation and what expenses do change with inflation. So Social Security is going to rise when inflation goes up. So if gas goes up, your Social Security goes up at the same time. If food goes up, your Social Security goes up. You may also have a mortgage, but you may have in Texas, seniors have uh, property taxes that are capped. Uh, at retirement. So they don't change over time. If you have a nominal annuity, they can fund those nominal expenses and you're not going to see a decline in purchasing power. So I think it's important to pay attention to which one of your expenses in retirement are going to rise with inflation, which are nominal, and then you don't face as much risk in covering those nominal expenses with a nominal income stream through annuitization. Can an advisor then help me through making adjustments if I'm in a more fixed income situation as a retiree? Yeah, I think they can. I think that, you know, it's, it's fun is to ask people like what kind of flexibility they have around their expenditures and everybody's different, right? I mean, if general inflation is high, it doesn't mean that it's, it's necessarily affecting you, right? But what it does mean is that you may have to make, you may have to make choices. And, you know, to the extent that you're willing to kind of make choices and cut back on things, well, that creates flexibility, right? It's like the less flexibility you have, the more that you need to have your savings or whatever else it is tied into assets that move with inflation, right? I don't want to make hard choices. I want there to be money forever at the level that I planned. Inflation, right. inflation screws all that. Well, I mean, it's just it's just one of many uncertainties, right? You, we don't know what markets are going to do. We don't know what inflation is going to be. We don't know how long we're going to live. We're going to have health shocks. I mean, retirement has all these really kind of unique idiosyncratic risks because it's not just if you experience inflation, but when you experience inflation, right, that, that matters. And I think that, that for better or for worse, there's just there isn't necessarily a perfect solution for all that because to my earlier point, there are not, an, there are not annuities today that provide lifetime benefits linked to inflation. There used to be, they're gone. So thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of the Wealth Managed Podcast. I'm Michael Finka. And I'm David Blanchett. See you later. For more episodes and shows, visit theamericancollege.edu slash podcasts. Wealth Managed is a production of the American College of Financial Services. 